0: Investors Chronicle, Companies and Markets podcast. Welcome back. It's first of December as we record, listener. Cue the Mariah Carey. I guess Christmas is here. Uh, Joining us, James Norrington. Hi, James. Hi, John. Hey, Dan. Very good. Welcome back to the pods. Alex Newman. Hello. Hello, John. Mark Robinson. (gasps) Hello again, John. Hello again, and Dan Jones as normal. Hi, Dan. Hi, John. How are you? Very well, thank you. Um, What have we got coming up? Today, we are going to start with our cover
1: feature this week, which is on rethinking asset allocation and trying to uh, ponder some of the developments that we've seen this year, developments, putting it uh, politely, with the traditional 60-40 model. So James is here to talk about that. Then we are going to segue seamlessly into looking at the slightly better news for markets over the past few weeks, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of green, a lot of companies in the black, share price-wise, for the first time in a while. So we are going to interrogate the uh, basis of that rally and whether there is anything particularly uh, convincing behind it. And to conclude, we are going to look at a couple of food and ingredients companies, Treat, Cranswick, Devro, for which there has been a bid in the last few days as well.
0: Delicious. Sounds wonderful. Uh, before then, a quick news roundup. As usual, the former boss of recently collapsed crypto platform FTX, Sam Backman-Fried, said he never tried to commit fraud, but that mistakes were made. A class action lawsuit was filed on behalf of FTX investors in the US on Wednesday, alleging FTX was a, quote, Ponzi scheme where FTX shuffled customer funds between their opaque affiliated companies. And sticking with crypto, a director general of the European Central Bank has warned that regulating cryptocurrencies risks legitimizing the sector. In a blog post, Ulrich Binzile wrote that Bitcoin is not a suitable payment system nor form of investment and should be treated as neither in regulatory terms. November saw UK house prices fall by their biggest monthly amount in two years. Figures from Nationwide saw a 1.4% drop from October as rising interest rates put buyers off. On the other hand, food price inflation hit 12.4% in the year to November with meat, eggs, dairy and coffee some of the big climbers. Elsewhere, Shell has struck a deal to acquire Nature Energy for 1.9 billion euros. The Danish company is a producer of renewable natural gas from agricultural, industrial and household wastes. And early in the week, EasyJet recorded a record bounce back in demand after two years of COVID disruption. It has narrowed its pre-tax loss to just £208 million, compared with losses in excess of £1 billion in 2020 and 2021. And finally, Federal Reserve Chair Jay Powell dropped a strong hint that the central bank will slow the pace of US interest rate rises. The S&P 500 rose 3.1% on Wednesday after the statement, bringing gains to 5.4% in November and the Nasdaq added 4.4% to end the month. Lots more news and companies roundups in the magazine as normal and on the website. But for now, back to Dan, the rest of the show. Thanks, John. So we will start today looking
1: at asset allocation, looking at diversification, which uh, James, who joins us, IC Alpha guru James Norrington, uh, as you open the cover feature this week, you say diversification long been touted as the only real free lunch for investors. But this year, that's proven easier said than done, I think. So can you talk a little bit about what your thinking was with this piece in terms of rethinking asset allocation and Looking again at diversification and how investors can use it to their advantage.
2: Well, I think um, in in sort of tough economic times, uh, the only thing that really goes up is um, is correlations. Um, and obviously you know, modern portfolio theory sort of found about 70 years ago by Harry Markowitz, the whole premise is that the different correlation between asset classes um, is, is what protects investors um, in times of turmoil. That hasn't been seen in 2022, um, particularly uh, sort of the, the high inflation, uh, periods of high inflation, we tend to see higher correlation between um, bonds and equities um and uh, And that's basically led to the fact that you know the bond prices and equity prices have both been going down um so you've seen capital losses on both sides of your portfolio. so if you're a traditional sixty percent equities forty percent bonds investor, um you've really had nowhere to hide this year
1: so with the piece, we are you know starting from that basis point, we're trying to think a little differently, think about how. You can assuage some of these issues, how you can improve upon that portfolio. Obviously, there aren't necessarily that many individual investors who will have precisely that allocation. There'll be lots of different things in, in any given portfolio. But uh, but what you've done is tried to come up with some, some different models, which may provide a little bit more ballast and a little bit more support in tough times uh, and also in particular, on a risk-adjusted basis?
2: Uh, I think the, f- the first thing to, to be said is um, strategic asset allocation is still important for the long term. I mean, the very fact that we've had higher interest rates, um, uh, interest rate increases over the last year, that does mean that going forward, probably even 60-40 is going to have um, a, offer you better protection. Um, but it's, it's really an opportunity to take a look at, at your long-term asset allocation strategy and think, can I do a bit better than 60-40? And in the meanwhile, well, You know, there's um, there are times when it's probably better to move to cash or to maybe to look at some other tactical asset allocation. Sorry, tactical asset classes such as gold or or commodities in inflationary inflationary periods. So, so that's really what what was looking at um, in the piece is is looking at your utility as an investor. What's the best risk adjusted, um, not just return but risk adjusted satisfaction you can get based on your personality type. Um, so we we looked at some models for for doing that. and uh, and we also discussed some 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 indicators, um which are probably quite good indicators within these different strategic asset allocation bands when there's times just to say, do you know what? I should be in cash for some of this asset allocation um for this this rough period and And actually, while it's hard to time that exactly, we all have emotional biases as investors. I think the window for making that decision to say of my, say, you know, seventy percent in equities, or um, I'm going to have half of that in cash for a short period of time um to think of those asset allocation slices as, as strategic but there may be tactical times where you decide to take a bit of that off the shelf off the off the table and have it as sort of dry powder for for the next lows uh,
1: as you say in the piece you know as as is uh, often mentioned you know the, the phrase is it's all about time in the market not timing the market but as you you just alluded to there are Potentially sell opportunities to think carefully about how your allocations could shift on a tactical basis when you're in a difficult period like this year. one of the um uh rationales for for this kind of thinking is something called garch, which i don't we won't attempt to explain the acronym. you can read it because it's fairly unpronounceable as it is but but maybe can you say a little bit about what that shows in terms of uh what that indicates? About volatility and times when things are looking quite volatile, what that potentially can tell the investor about what to do.
2: And it's a it's a it's a favourite of, of hedge funds and um and, and really what what the the basic premise of it is is that the the smoothed out volatility. So people said about your risk, you've got an annualised volatility of X number of percent. Well, what gosh recognises is is that. The main contributor to those volatility is volatility is clustered. So the high risk periods are clustered. And what you can see by um, keeping track of GASH, which is is a predictive measure, looking at, at previous volatility um, and uh, and you know and, and how that's going to be sort of reflexive in the market um, going forward, it can be a pretty good indicator. And it can be elevated along with sort of some actually realized volatility to give you a relatively wide window um, of when you might decide to sell out of cash um you can see the difference in movements the the, the peaks obviously are, um are, you know you can't really time but it gives you a, a, a reasonable indicator to think when you also do a smell test thinking about um you know what's going on in the economy where are we in the credit cycle you know how many legs down have we had in a in a bear market you know you might think to yourself well hang on you know these indicators are, are suggesting that that, you know, that there's still a lot of um, a lot of uncertainty ahead in in the economy and um, and on the markets, uh, and uh, so now might be a time for me to reduce um, some of my allocations into cash, for example, just to, to give you that bit of market timing protection.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the basis of the piece, you know, a lot of these terms are quite complicated, even in uh, acronym form, but the basis, I think, is, is we're trying to distill some of that complexity involved in, in you know, portfolio theory into something uh, understandable for the, for the average reader and something that boils down to portfolios that, though when it comes to it, aren't necessarily very complicated, but they might nonetheless offer a little bit more to the average investor. So, so do, if you're listening to this and you are interested and this is piqued your interest, do pick up a copy and have a look. We have a more detail in there on those portfolios and in how they work and the rationale behind them. Speaking of though, down markets and you know, various legs down, things like that, and, and dead cat bounces, perhaps that probably brings us to our next section where we are looking at the fortunes of markets over the last few weeks where things have been going slightly better Uh, We are coming to the end of the year. We're getting to the cliched Santa rally time. Now we're in December. We've already had what has been a very strong November, uh, just looking at a couple of stats. FTSE 100 has had its best month for two years. FTSE 250 has posted a 7% share price return. That's not the best month for two years because we did have a similar rally in the summer, which uh, Alex perhaps speaks to the fact that although times have been better over the last few weeks, that doesn't necessarily mean the pain is all over. Yeah. um,
3: Yeah, I don't really know what to make of it, to be honest. I I think, um, yeah, whether it's the beginning of the end or the, you know, a dead cat bounce, as you said, or the end of the beginning, whatever it is, I mean, there's clearly a lot of cash on the side um, uh, waiting to jump in at the, you know, the, the, the first sniff that things might be turning. So any comment from Jay Powell that, you know interest rate rises might be the pace might be slowing uh, in in the months ahead its seized upon us you know this is now risk on mode and it's time to pile back in equities. similarly you know you know any reading such as I think this week the, the eurozone inflation print came in slightly below forecast though at ten percent that's much higher than anyone would have been forecasting a year ago um so so there is this you know there is a lot of anticipation and uh, yeah like i said cash on the side keen to get in at the you know the earliest opportunity i think until from from the from the peak which was last november until the the real trough um which was which was october uh, global equities fell 30% that's that is quite a big drawdown quite a big correction so it's it's understandable that um that investors are looking to to jump back in and you know and 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 looking to get greedy when others are fearful um but i mean i mean one thing i would just say uh you know there's obviously lots to talk about here and and also we can sort of talk about how sort of brief rallies are, are possibly not the thing to pay attention to when you're investing but uh, i mean i'd say the none of the massive risks really that have spooked markets over the last year have, have gone away so we still have very high inflation high interest rates a looming recession, war in Europe, and you know, fracturing geopolitical situation. Uh, so you have got depressed consumers, depressed industrial sentiment. You know, it doesn't mean that long-term risks aren't worth taking. But but you know, to to read into a a rally which has you know has been pretty strong over the last six weeks or so uh, that that we've kind of you know we've sort of hit the bottom and now we can re- re- resume our sort of post-financial crisis bull rally, I think it's maybe a bit premature. Mark, Mm. I can hear your breath breath on the line. Are you you eager to jump in?
4: My breath on the line. Um, (laughs) No, I I just reiterate um, your point there. I mean, when you look at um, what's happened to index values in the US, for instance, that points to the uh, rotation out of growth stocks into value. But uh, the reason this has happened uh, has as much to do with sensitivity to interest rates rather than any decisions that are based on fundamental analysis. And you've got a situation as well where because of the interest rates, a lot of liquidity has been withdrawn from the market as well. I doubt very much whether there are any sort of crystalline assumptions baked into share prices and index values uh, at the moment. Uh, But, you know, it's far too, it's far too, we're, we're entering the leg where where most of the economic pain will be evident, I tend to think, and that's a quite a depressing thought in of itself. But certainly, uh, even if inflationary uh, pressures ease through next year, there are already um, definite signs that the uh, the labour market is suffering. And uh, forward sort of um, various surveys recently uh, demonstrate that firms are actually cutting down on their hiring plans into next year, and that will have a profound effect on the economy. I mean, we haven't had this situation in in years, of course, where we've had to make assumptions on markets um, linked to high inflationary pressures. But in the past, we do know that when you've got job insecurity as a factor within the economy, that has a profound effect.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, as Alex alluded to at the beginning, uh, this is all premised on the fact that you know, there have been some noises from central banks, which which markets have, have taken a liking to, specifically the suggestion from the Fed that the pace of its hiking will slow slightly, albeit the peak ultimately might still be higher than people expect. In the UK, obviously, the the Bank of England is now you know, backing away from uh, market expectations of a, a peak base rate around 5%, something like that. Uh, so there is... To me, there is something a bit more to this than there was in July when that really seemed to be running on fumes. But yes, nonetheless, we're still in a situation where even if rates and inflation do peak, I think what central bankers, what most people are telling us, is that both will remain elevated for a long time to come.
4: Even though know, you've got this situation as well where um... – uh, the yield inversions have narrowed slightly uh, over the last uh, month or so, or certainly in the, in the case of the UK since they had um, Rishi Sunak came into power. But it's it's incremental. It's still incremental at this stage. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, markets, of course,
1: are forward-looking, and we've had episodes before, I suppose, 2020 being a, an example where, or two examples in some ways uh, in 2020 where um, markets seize upon the opportunity to look much further ahead than the economy. First in April, where we had the really speedy rally from the bottoming out, you know, right in the middle of lockdown. And then in November, when the uh, first sign of vaccine effectiveness really sparked a big rally as well. So it's conceivable that markets are simply anticipating, well, inflation is peaking. We are not through this. But as, again, as you said, Alex, you know, this may be the end of the beginning, if not the beginning of the end, and that can turbocharge things. But the, the difference being this time... Money is not as cheap as it was, and it won't be as cheap as it was f- for a long while, you would expect. So investors are still going to have to consider the things they've been starting to look at in recent months in terms of, you know, debt, debt financing of companies, things like that.
3: Yeah, I'd, I'd say, I mean, one thing to to try and bring it back to some of the things James was talking about and the, the, you know, the classic 60-40 portfolio. Mm. If I was going to sort of lay my cards on the table, um, and, you know, I'm not putting money to this or anything, but I, I mean... It, at the moment, it seems to me that the global equities still. I mean, I think we can accept the UK a little bit because it's a bit of a weird market, and we've you know there's a bit more that you know there's a higher allocation to commodities, which is, has been has been good this year, and you know there's the exposure to the to the pound that's that's not huge. But I mean, global equities are, or particularly the you know which are dominated by the US, still look expensive in the sense that they're trading on around 17. Times forward earnings. So, if we are if we're assuming that interest rates are going to be three and a half percent at the end the end of the next year, and we're still going to have some residual inflation, even if it has peaks, that is a little bit that is a little bit expensive. Um, but if you compare that to to bonds at the moment and or fixed income, ten year treasuries are yielding um, uh, are yielding sort of over three percent. If your expectation is that inflation will have come down below that. By the end of next year, which I don't think is a wild, wild call. If you are hopeful of that inflation peaking narrative, then there is there looks to be more of. It's not a guarantee, but there looks to be a greater chance of a real return uh, in fixed incomes in, in fixed income assets next year. So you know, if if you've been spooked by the last year and almost everyone has, then and, and your risk aversion has has you know changed substantially by the market market picture we now have. I think the I think the, you know, the, the, the safer bet, which traditionally is in bonds is looking a little bit more, yeah, it's looking a little bit more reasonably priced now relative to equities. That's my, it's not my enormous 2023 call, but that's my, I'd say that's my cards on the line at the moment, looking at, looking at how things are. That's so, your, yeah,
1: that's your yeah. suspicion. So, yeah. yeah, so as I say, you know, we are in December now, we've got, we've got a month to go over the year and. I mean, maybe some of it is that kind of Santa feeling as well. People like to uh, have a good year end and then reassess in January. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I mean, there's a there's a good chance we we could see a little bit more of this in the next few weeks as well. Well,
4: well actually, on the on the point of glad tidings as well, I think it's worth uh, remembering uh, that um, equity markets tend to um, retrace well in advance of the economy itself. So even if we're going through this, uh, we have this. Uh, Pretty dire prospect in front of us to 2023. Uh, if history, if we can go by history, then uh, the markets will emerge prior to the economy itself, mm. which is uh, worth keeping in mind for investors. Absolutely.
1: Let's uh, look at a specific company or two now for the first time this week. We are going to discuss treat the ingredients producer, and then maybe talk a little bit about pork. With a couple of companies uh, in the UK market, Cranswick and, and Devro. Let, let's start with Treat, though. Mark, uh, you covered the yeah. uh, figures of the recent days. Um, they come on the back of a bit of a warning on profits in August, but the, yeah. bu- the business doesn't look in terrible shape. Nonetheless, is that fair? A fair assessment?
4: Yeah, that is a fair assessment as well. I mean, uh, the the shares tanked on the um, on the August profit warning itself. There is. The, pro- the reasons behind that, the principal reasons behind it are are beyond um, treats control at the moment, and that's uh, linked to um, the fall away in Chinese demand for obvious reasons. And also, it's a question of the previous uh, year comparator as well, because uh, there was one specific contract that uh, management alluded to, which um, makes uh, this year's figures seem all the more uh, anemic. The, the company itself produces... Uh, uh, natural e- extracts and ingredients and it supplies into the uh, sort of drinks business and also fragrances and some other applications too and so we we may remain sort of um, positive on the long-term prospects because it's bought into the general trend towards healthier consumer uh, ingredients. It's the reason why for instance that uh, Tate and Nile have been changing their product offering and um, even even a company like AG bar which produces uh, iron brew amongst other drinks they've been trying to alter their product to to in response to the secular trend towards you know he- healthier consumption comparative trading uh with treat within the higher margin tea category that was the reason why um, margins have suffered this time around as well but it's um the ma- management also makes the point that the the company itself isn't that exposed to to such volatility and margins uh, normally and there's also some problems as well uh, linked to forex uh, hedging in fact they they overhedge so that can sort of eat into your margins too but i would i would stress the fact that I, we still think it's a really interesting interesting company it's got a good track record and uh, a plus point as well as far as we're concerned at the ic and from the point of view of our readers as well, they're very candid about uh, where the business is placed at the moment. So, um, looking forward, I would say you know this is a this is still a really good company, and uh, it's just that uh, like many others at the moment, there's going to be some sort of uh, near-term turbulence.
1: Do do you have a sense, or do do the company provide much of a sense of, of you know outlook-wise? Because as we say, you know this has been a tough year, a couple of uh, bad reactions to. I think both the interim and the uh, interim results and the trading update. But you know, looking ahead, what are the you know long term? Well, yes, still a good business, but in the medium term, what are the kind of potential catalysts there?
4: Well, the the one thing they did point out, and I think it's uh, they're justified in doing so, is that the um, uh, the drinks part of the business, or the or the ingredients they sell into the drinks business, will hold up better during any economic downturn because that that's just the way things are. People will still buy soft drinks. You know if they if they if they're changing consumer habits it will be in other parts uh, of household expenditure too but we did make the point or i made the point anyway that that um that might necessarily apply in terms of the the their fragrance products um so uh you know they've they the rating is still uh reasonably high as well it's 29 times um forecast earnings which i think it's now, that that's obviously reflects August's markdown uh, to a certain extent. But I think I think they, you know, the, the, the balance sheet is solid enough. I don't think we're going to have you know a breakout in trading in the first half of next year. But I I, I would just um, I would say that it's a it's a quality company. And in fact, you know, there were priced they were priced for growth as well even prior to August. But I think it's just a an interim problem. Mm you mentioned china and as a factor
1: which is the case for a lot of companies including potentially uh, another couple we're going to talk about now cranswick and devro as well in relation to pork prices both of these companies involved uh in that market let's start with devro because there has been a bid there for the company mark again you uh, addressed this this week in your in your column do you want
4: to talk a little bit more about devro yeah. the opportunity there well it's odd when you read this um the, the takeover as well, because given the potential synergies between uh, Devo and uh, Saria, uh, which is a German uh, family family-run business, there must have been sort of thoughts about a potential offer in in the past. And so I, you know, come to the assumption that this reflects to a large degree just how cheap UK stocks are at the moment. Uh, it's it's been recommended by the board, and it's had a hefty premium to the Closing price uh, prior to the offer itself, and from all accounts, uh, the main kicker in all this is uh, Devro's uh, R and D uh, and product innovation as well, which the the German company uh, can incorporate uh, with their brand as well. They've, they've all they already have a, a commercial relationship, uh, which helps matters along. So one imagines that this would close uh, fairly quickly too. <laughs> yeah. When you when you think about it, too, you know the the company, and in fact, Cranswick, have been affected in recent times by uh, well, for quite some period actually, because of the the spread of uh, African swine fever as well, and the fact if you look you look back through their share price history, they when they've shown weakness any time that we've seen an increase in uh, pork prices, uh, which is quite interesting in of itself. Um, pig prices had, had sort of gone through the roof earlier on this year up until about um, midway through the year, but I was intrigued to learn that, that China uh, – as you mentioned before, it has a major lever in this market as well because they seem to have what might be termed a strategic pork reserve there, which uh, I think you looked at it a little closer than I did, Dan. Which they've tried to release on a couple of occasions this year, but of course, you know, if if more of that more, more pork comes into the market, there's an obvious sort of downward pressure on on prices. So that you know, perhaps perhaps that sort of um, positive for the d- business model going forward.
1: I, I had a brief look at the uh, Chinese strategic pork reserve uh, you're right in the uh, uh, prices in China have been really been soaring recently, and I think they've tried a few times this year to increase supply and a bit to to uh stave that off and you know create some uh, and prevent some difficulties emerging for for the Chinese populace but with limited joy so far because those prices are still uh still climbing but
4: uh I, th- I think there's every chance they they will remain elevated or at least they'll they'll be okay even if you have blood. Large- increased volumes coming onto the market, we still have this problem linked to fertilizers and grain prices. And of course, that was in evidence at the beginning of this year, but you won't get the full impact of that until we go into uh, next spring and summer then it will become sort of obvious particularly with them um, uh, you look at things like the uh, the winter wheat production mm. and uh, the fact that you know th- there are a couple of other areas of grain production which have been weak as well including um and soy too so i mean that's all gonna um that's all gonna sort of impact on livestock prices yeah
1: cranswick then alex i don't know if you have a view on the, the company i mean uh, pork and poultry supplier. I think some analysts say that higher prices were in Chinese, big prices, if we're going to return to that uh, topic again, would be helpful for the company in, in the second half of the year uh, in terms of, you know, it is able to pass those on relatively well, can help boost profits in terms of, well, revenues certainly in terms of price, if not necessarily in terms of volume. Uh, what's your take on on Cranswick as a business?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, uh, it's an interesting business. I mean, they... They have they have managed to grow um, profits and 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 sales quite well over it, uh, recent years, but um, I suppose they're, they're sort of you know as we kind of alluded to, there's a sort of twin track um, investment story here that they are obviously they're, deal- they're dealing with you know international commodity markets and pork prices and the kind of a magnetic pull of China as an export market at the same time that they're catering and they're trying to they're, they're shifting their product mix to cater to a domestic UK um consumer. Uh, and they've they have made efforts to 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 broaden beyond you know dairy. So they've acquired a couple of um I mean, they call them sort of Medita- Mediterranean ambient businesses, but I mean they've, they've basically they've, they've gone seem to have gone big in hummus and um olives and and uh, and kind of higher value uh I suppose kind of healthier uh vegetable or plant-based uh foods. So they they've they've kind of spread the risks a little bit between those two, you know, between those two stories, it's a little, I think it's a little hard for them to communicate how they're going to grow margins, how they're going to, you know, grow as, grow as a business because, you know, that they are buffeted by a very hard to call international um, story as well as the, you know, as well as appealing sensibly and, and trying to market sensibly to the UK consumer. But I mean, w- one point I, I would say is uh, what I think I I do like about the business and I say that uh, I don't eat meat so I'm a vegetarian so you know that might sound surprising to for me to say that but the I think the way they the they're kind of uh, the business model in that they own the assets so not only do they farm but they process and they also supply gives them it gives them a degree of control and and long term flexibility. I think it's kind of one of the things that attracted the private equity suitors to Morrison's last year. Um, that there is you know, an, sort of an access both to the ag- agricultural base of, of the company as well as you know a direct consumer relationship. I think I think you know gives lots of options for a, a business in in the long term and probably justifies their um, their rating, even though growth growth prospects. A little bit, a little bit shakier. So, so yeah. I mean, we have talked about Devro's takeover. I, I wouldn't be surprised if um, if Cranswick is, you know, is uh, sort of an appetising prospect for lots of international capital. Albeit, you know, there's su- there's such an important part of the UK food system that it might attract, um, you know, political scrutiny. I'd imagine.
4: I, th- I think it's worth mentioning as well that that um, that its poultry division was a standout performer at the time of the last full year results, but of course. There's a there's a major outbreak of uh, avian uh, yep. flu in the, com- uh, the country at the moment, and uh, the full impact of that hasn't been brought to bear yet. But that's that's a that's a real potential problem. Uh, but Alex, I mean, when you you look back at the numbers for Qantas uh, over the last few years, it, it's no wonder that they've attracted interest. You know, it's year-on-year year increases in uh, statutory profit and earnings, and uh, Sort of a decent dividend in the bargain.
3: Yeah, you got you. Do, you do have to hand it to management. It's not easy managing these low-margin businesses, but um, they have done a pretty good job, <clears throat> you'd say.
4: Uh, aren't they
3: based in the Hull? They're everywhere. I was just looking at the map of their operations. They've got quite. They've got quite. Yeah, they're they're Hull based, but they've got a lot of farms in in, in sort of East Anglia and and yeah, sort of Preston and uh, East Yorkshire. I think.
1: So yeah, all over
3: really. Um, right, grand. Right, grand.
1: Yes. Uh, Hull, I think they've, they've got a few facilities there, haven't they? And cooked meats is another uh, string to their bow and they have a facility there as well. So uh, I guess that speaks to one of your points, Alex, about the the, the kind of a range of uh, you know, um, business arms, but also parts of the uh, manufacturing process and, and things like that as well. Anyway, that does bring us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you to James, to Alex, to Mark and to John. We will see you next week with another Companies and Markets show.